Hello everyone, welcome to the December 14th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Last year, Governor Gavin Newsom signed AB 51, which effectively outlawed mandatory arbitration agreements with employees. Governor Jerry Brown had vetoed similar bills repeatedly when he was in office. The law allows workers to pursue damages and attorney fees and open criminal cases against employers who discriminate and retaliate against them for declining arbitration contracts. The analysis of the Senate Rules Committee demonstrated that the legislature was well aware that a bill prohibiting arbitration agreements could be challenged as being preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. But they went ahead and passed the law despite that reservation. Last January, a U.S. district judge blocked state officials from enforcing key provisions of the bill that regulate agreements governed by the Federal Arbitration Act. The court agreed with a coalition of business groups led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that AB 51 unfairly regulated or singled out arbitration agreements in comparison to other contracts. The ruling was appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the matter was set for oral argument this December. During the oral argument, a California Justice Department attorney told a Ninth Circuit panel that it should overturn the judge's ruling. He claimed AB 51 was crafted to complement the Federal Arbitration Act and that it does not undermine arbitration but rather targets employers' discriminatory intent toward workers. The Chamber of Commerce attorneys argued that the bill would unfairly expose California businesses to civil and criminal penalties and force them to both alter hiring practices and spend more on dispute resolution and told the panel the Federal Arbitration Act clearly preempts state laws that block formation and enforcement of arbitration agreements. The Ninth Circuit panel took the matter under submission and did not indicate when it would rule. And our crime report. 73-year-old Moses Luna, who lives in Newport Beach, and works as an applicant attorney, was arrested on 20 felony counts of insurance fraud after allegedly billing 20 separate insurance companies for translation and interpreting services. The scheme allowed Mr. Luna to collect over $310,000 in undeserved workers' compensation fees. An investigation found that Luna created Adelante Interpreting Incorporated, a translation and interpreting company, and then fraudulently billed 20 separate insurance carriers for translation and interpreting services on his legal cases. Luna exclusively referred his own workers' compensation clients to Adelante interpreters to fraudulently collect workers' compensation interpreter fees. The fees Luna received were for translation and interpreting services rendered to his clients during depositions and medical appointments. Insurance companies paid the fees due to Luna's referrals since the services were necessary for processing the claims. 
Luna failed to disclose his financial interest in the company, as required by law, and used his daughter's name, Deborah Luna, on corporate paperwork to hide his ownership of the company. Although his daughter's name was used for the paperwork, Luna himself controlled all aspects of Atlante interpreters. There is a large list of victim insurance companies. Luna is scheduled to return to court next January as the case is being prosecuted by the Orange County District Attorney's Office. 34-year-old Perry Adam Lieber, who lives in Santa Barbara and who was a former Ventura County firefighter, was charged earlier this year with three felonies in a case involving workers' comp fraud. Lieber allegedly made material misrepresentations about the nature and extent of an industrial injury as well as his true physical abilities. Prosecutors also say he also misrepresented his income while getting disability pay and lied under oath during a deposition. Lieber ultimately pled guilty this month and during his guilty plea admitted making false and material misrepresentations for the purpose of obtaining disability benefits to which he was not entitled. Victim agencies, York Risk Services, and the County of Ventura are alleged to have sustained losses of nearly $150,000. The Ventura County Fire Department chief said Lieber resigned from the agency in early March. Lieber faces a maximum penalty of five years in jail, as well as a fine of up to double the amount of fraud or nearly $300,000. The Ventura County District Attorney's Office Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit obtained a temporary restraining order seizing Mr. Lieber's bank accounts and other assets in connection with the fraud investigation. A portion of these assets will be liquidated to pay victim restitution and criminal fines. Lieber is scheduled to be sentenced on January 6. 53-year-old David Bergmeier, who lives in Simi Valley, California, pleaded guilty to four counts of felony insurance fraud and four counts of felony unemployment insurance fraud. At the time of his pleas, Bergmeier paid $45,000 in partial restitution owed to the victims in this case, the State Compensation Insurance Fund, and the Employment Development Department. Bergmeier has been a licensed general building contractor since 1998 and owned and operated Bergmeier Construction in Simi Valley, California. He misrepresented the number of his employees and the total amount of payroll to the victims in this case. His fraud resulted in the underpayment of insurance premiums of more than $175,000 to the state fund and the underpayment of taxes of nearly $40,000 to the EDD. Bergmeier will be sentenced on January 7 and faces a maximum sentence of 10 years and 8 months in prison. His contractor's license expired on May 31, 2018, and he is no longer licensed in California. And in regulatory news, the Department of Industrial Relations and its Division of Workers' Compensation posted a progress report on the department's independent medical review program, 
The report describes IMR program activity in 2019, the seventh year since the program was implemented. The organization administering the program, Maximus Federal Services Incorporated, received over 222,000 IMR applications in 2019 and issued almost 164,000 final determination letters. The average length of time to issue an IMR determination after receipt of all medical records ranged from seven to eight days throughout 2019. Overall, there was a 12% decrease in IMR activity compared to 2018. 10.4% of the utilization review decisions that denied treatment requests made by physicians treating injured workers were overturned. This rate of overturn is similar to the previous year, which was then 10.3%. As in previous years, substantially similar rates of overturned cases occurred in all geographic regions. Specialist consultations, office visits, and mental health services were overturned most often. Pharmaceuticals accounted for 36.7% of treatment requests sent for IMR, with opioids comprising nearly one of every three pharmaceutical requests. The progress report is posted on the DIR website. Cal OSHA's emergency regulations requiring employers to protect workers from hazards related to COVID-19 are now in effect, following their approval by the Office of Administrative Law. The emergency standards apply to most workers in California and clarify what employers have to do to prevent workplace exposure to COVID-19 and stop outbreaks. Some non-California employers are required to meet federal OSHA standards, and that agency has markedly stepped up its enforcement of safety measures related to the coronavirus. The U.S. Department of Labor's OSHA has issued 203 citations arising from inspections for violations related to coronavirus, resulting in proposed penalties of close to $3 million for the federal organization. Examples of citations given to employers for violations include failures to implement a written respiratory protection program, to provide a medical evaluation respirator fit test training on the proper use of a respirator and personal protective equipment, and failure to report an injury, illness, or fatality and record an injury or illness on OSHA record-keeping forms and failure to comply with the General Duty Clause of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. Many of the more recent citations were given to either health care facilities or senior care living facilities. On November 20th, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued a final rule to modernize and clarify the regulations that interpret the Medicare Physician Self-Referral Law, often called the Stark Law. The Stark Law has not been significantly updated since it was enacted back in 1989. 
Under the Stark Law, a physician is prohibited from making referrals to an entity for health care services if the physician has a financial relationship with the entity. The regulations were intended to protect patients in a health care system that reimbursed providers on a fee-for-service basis. But the new final rule supports the CMS Patients Over Paperwork Initiative by reducing the unnecessary regulatory burdens on physicians and other health care providers, while reinforcing the Star Clause goal of protecting patients from unnecessary services and being steered to less convenient, lower quality, or more expensive services because of a physician's financial self-interest. The new final rule opens additional avenues now for physicians and other health care providers to coordinate the care of the patients they serve. The rule now allows providers across different health care settings to work together to ensure payments receive the highest quality, patients receive the highest quality of care. CMS worked closely with the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Inspector General, in finalizing its policies that advance the transition to a value-based healthcare delivery and payment system that improves the coordination of care among physicians and other healthcare providers in both the federal and commercial sectors. Industry leaders say this should be recognized as one of the most important health policy achievements of recent years. It supports moving toward an era in healthcare that recognizes the importance of care coordination and fully integrated care involving primary care providers, specialists, hospitals, pharmacies, drug and device manufacturers, and more. It remains to be seen if regulators in California will follow this thinking in terms of regulating those involved in workers' compensation medical delivery systems. In the COVID-19 era, licensed clinicians have been able to prescribe opioid analgesics for their patients, even if they've only ever seen the patient by way of telehealth rather than in person as a result of relaxed federal emergency orders. The Ryan Haight Online Pharmacy Consumer Protection Act, passed in 2008, included a prohibition on writing prescriptions for controlled substances such as opioids by means of internet, unless the clinician first conducted an in-person exam. The 2008 law came with a number of exceptions and carve-outs, one of which is for public health emergencies, such as the one declared by HHA Secretary Alex Azar, MD, on January 31 this year. It effectively put the Ryan Hate Act provision on hold for the duration of the coronavirus pandemic. The Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, issued an exception allowing prescribing of controlled substances by way of telemedicine without a prior in-person visit during the pandemic. But the question now is, what happens when the current COVID emergency order issued by the Department of Health and Human Services expires? Palliative, palliative care doctors who have learned how to manage patients remotely by telemedicine 
may have to return to the old ways, including a requirement that they see a patient in person before prescribing opioids. But CMS has indicated that it will revisit guidelines around telehealth services, generally at the time when the emergency order is phased out. However, it is not known if it intends to address the prescribing situation. This question plays out in the context of the other ongoing national epidemic of prescription opioid overdoses, with federal agencies trying to curb excessive opioid prescribing. Because every state is different, both for opioids and telehealth, providers need to take a close look at existing state law. Legal experts therefore caution doctors to plan for the future and know that the relaxation of regulations due to the emergency orders is going to end, and that may be tough for patients. And in medical news, a retired British shop clerk received the first shot in the country's COVID-19 vaccination program, marking the start of an unprecedented global immunization effort intended to offer a route out of a pandemic that has killed 1.5 million people. 91-year-old Margaret Keenan got the first shot on what public health officials have dubbed V-Day. She was first in line at University Hospital Coventry, one of several hospitals around the country that are handling the initial phase of the United Kingdom's program. The UK is the first Western country to start a mass vaccination program after British regulators last week authorized the use of a COVID-19 shot developed by U.S. drug maker Pfizer and Germany's BioNTech. U.S. and European Union regulators may approve the vaccine in the coming days or weeks, fueling a global immunization effort. Britain's program is likely to provide lessons for other countries as they prepare for the unprecedented task of vaccinating billions of people. Amid the fanfare, authorities warned that the vaccination campaign could take many months meaning painful restrictions that have disrupted daily life and punished the economy are likely to continue until spring. Other vaccines are also being reviewed by regulators around the world, including a collaboration between Oxford University and drug maker AstraZeneca and one developed by U.S. biotechnology company Moderna. Britain has received 800,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine, enough to vaccinate 400,000 people. The first shots will go to people over 80 who are either hospitalized or already have outpatient appointments scheduled, along with nursing home workers and vaccination staff. Britain is the first country to deliver a broadly tested and independently reviewed vaccine to the general public. But on the following Saturday, Russia began vaccinating thousands of doctors, teachers, and others at dozens of centers in Moscow with its Sputnik V vaccine. China has also begun giving its own domestically made shots to its citizens and selling them abroad. 
but those products are being viewed differently because neither country's vaccines have finished the late-stage trials scientists consider essential for proving that a vaccine is safe and effective. But V-Day, or Vaccine Day, was accompanied by some troubling news about the vaccine. The European Medicines Agency has been subject to a cyber attack, and some documents relating to the regulatory submission for Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine candidate, which has been stored on the EMA server, has been unlawfully accessed. The German biotechnology company stresses that no BioNTech or Pfizer systems were accessed during the breach, which suggests that it was the European Union regulator whose security failed. They added that they were unaware of any of their study participants being identified as a result of the breach and that they are awaiting further information about EMA's investigation and will respond appropriately and in accordance with EU law. In the meantime, their focus remains steadfast on working in close partnership with governments and regulators to bring COVID-19 vaccine to people around the globe as safely and as efficiently as possible. The British National Cybersecurity Center has indicated that the hack should not impact the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine rapid rollout in the United Kingdom. And the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has advised that the coronavirus prophylactic should not be administered to people with a history of significant reaction to medicines, foods, or vaccines that occurred after two National Health Service workers showed symptoms of anaphylactoid reaction shortly after being injected. Thus, the regulator now advises that resuscitation facilities should be present at all vaccination sites and vaccinations not carried out if they are not available. According to the BBC, it is not clear whether or whether or not cyber attackers also attacked, also hacked, the EMA's documents on the Moderna vaccine at present. China, Iran, and Russia have all been accused of using hackers against coronavirus vaccine research by Western governments. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.